Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Some of you know me. Some of you, maybe you're just tuning in for the first time because you're a big Joel Hodgson fan. Yeah, Joel Hodgson. I, you know what? I, I think my ability to speak is deteriorating. It's not senility. It's not Alzheimer's. I just think that my my tongue and my ability to enunciate is just giving up. It's giving up. Joel Hodgson is here today from uh, MST Mystery Science Theater 3000. They're doing it again. It's happening. And coincidentally, also on the show today, someone who is on the new MST 3K, Jonah Ray to promote something else, but we got a little bit in for the other thing. He's my buddy. He's been on my TV show. He lives down the street from me. Always nice to see Jonah. So big double header here today. So I'll try not to go too crazy talking about my own shit, but uh, welcome to the show. If this is your first time, if it's not nice to have you back, how you holding up? Are you okay? Uh, I'm out of town still. I, you know, I've, I've been at it, man. I have been at it, but uh, in, in all honesty, the, the two real tour has concluded. My tour dates are done. But look, if you still want to see me live, I'll be at BookCon Saturday, June 3rd in New York City. Come hear me talk about the uh, the new WTF book, Waiting for the Punch, with my producer, Brendan McDonald. You'll get an advanced copy of the book, and we'll sign it for you. What do you think of that? You can go to thebookcon.com for tickets. So I've been out. I've been around. I've been pushing the uh, the 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 limits with the standup as, as many of you know, I taped that special. I guess it's going to be a couple of weeks ago now in Minneapolis. And we got to cut that Lynn Shelton and myself. She directed it. Uh, all the dates that were from the two real tour beginning with Carnegie hall, even a little, it was actually before Carnegie hall, uh, did some club dates and then moved into the theaters. And it was all sort of converging on that, on the special. Been doing a lot of standup. And last weekend, which would have been the day before yesterday, last Friday and Saturday. It was kind of uh, pretty crazy because I think the last time I talked to you guys, I was in New York doing the Glow Junket, doing the press for the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. But then I did a lot of running around leading up to the final show of the tour at at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. So I was in New York, and on the Thursday, I went down to... uh, 
I took the train, took the train down to DC. Now, look, I, you know, I'm not an elitist in any way. And, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't like making a big deal about things or, or being ostentatious, but I'll be honest with you. Brendan and I had to go down to DC on Thursday to do some business Friday morning. We had somebody we had to talk to and, uh, I got I got his first class tickets on the Acela train from New York to DC. It's about three and a half hour run. The Acela is already a fast, you know, in, in terms of Amtrak, it's a little more pricey. It's supposedly an all business class train. But I figured, hey, let's let's live a little and do the first class thing. But you know what? You know what it really comes down to is I don't know if you've ever had to get on a train in one of the major metropolitan areas like uh, Philly or New York or DC. But the the panic, the panic of boarding. Is, is something I wanted to avoid. And apparently I was willing to spend a few dollars to do it. Just that sort of, you don't know what track it's going to be on. If you're a Penn Station, you're just sitting there like in, in starting position. You're, you're in starting position. You got one foot in front of the other when it's coming down to the wire on, on your time of departure. And you're just looking at that board. And when they drop that track number, you got to like, wait, you try to familiarize yourself with the architecture of the situation and figure out where all the tracks are. I mean, maybe you know that if you do it regularly. I don't. But then you're just re- you're just waiting to bolt, waiting to bolt with everybody else. Just that panic of fifty to hundred people, just like ah, the track seven. And uh, I don't know. I wanted to avoid that, and it was worth the uh, few dollars extra to avoid that. We sit in first class on a train. It's not like an airplane, but you, you do recline a little bit, and they do give you some food, and uh, and it was nice. Give me a time to talk to Brendan, catch up, and uh, we didn't have to go through the. Uh, the, the panic, the bolting panic of boarding a train. So we went down to D.C., and then Friday morning we did the thing, then Brendan went back home, and then when I, I went up to Philly to do the Merriam Theater with my buddy Nate Bargetzi, and the Philly crowd was great. It was just a, it was a great night, and uh, we did a nice tight show. I wasn't feeling great, but I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't make a big deal out of it. I just did my job, and the set is so goddamn tight right now. I didn't, uh, it wasn't like I walked through it or slept through it, but I, I did my job. I was a little compromised physically. And then somehow or another, we managed to get a uh, roast pork sandwich in with the broccoli rob and the uh, provolone. Uh, mine was sitting in my dressing room. The guy who, the stage manager over at the Miriam had set us up. I didn't get over to John's or Denick's. Didn't have time. There was no time coming up from D.C., getting settled, getting my shit together. Then uh, we do that show, eat the roast pork, crash next day, up. Take the train back down to D.C. And you know what? From Philly to D.C., I did it again. I got first class. I'm living it. I'm living large getting first class on the Amtrak. That's where I'm at. So now I'm going back down to D.C. And I, you know, I spent some time in D.C., Washington, D.C., which, of course, is the focus of of all of our attention, all of our anxious attention, all of our terrified attention, depending on which side you're falling on. Some of you are, I guess, a couple of you, you're, you're just thrilled with every minute of spontaneous horror. But those of you who have, uh, who have listened to this show for a while know that um, I like D.C. I like going there. It, 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 it does still and always has represented something, probably a dream. And, and it's seeming more and more like a dream uh, of a country to, to this day. But I, I still like walking around D.C. So I get to D.C. and, uh, you know, I'm nervous because yeah, I'm, I'm not hiding the fact that uh, I'm I'm sort of terrified as you know our democracy seems to be barely holding i didn't know if i would witness the carnage that was addressed in the inaugural speech like what is dc like now i had not been there uh since this administration uh took uh control 
And I am happy to report, at least on this level, that that DC was was thriving and diverse and exciting. And there was all kinds of things going on with all kinds of different people. I look around at all the people and they're okay. They're getting through it. These people were designed to endure Americans. We're designed to to hopefully, you know, fight for what's right whenever we have the opportunity to do so. But it just felt like America still in Washington, D.C. Kind people, nice people, polite people of all kinds going about their day, enjoying the nation's capital and, and engaging whatever events they were doing. The museums were all open. The carnage was not present. But it was a different experience for me in this in that. You know, I've been there, and whenever you go there, who was ever president, doesn't no matter, don't matter who it is. You look at the White House, and you're like, "Holy shit!" There's the White House, and there there is always a sort of, I, I believe, maybe I'm unique as an American, a sense of awe to the uh, to the the buildings of government. But this was the first time, like, you know, I just remember going, been there many times over my life, and you're always sort of fascinated with it. Why do I project? I'm always sort of fascinated with it. But this was like this time it was more of a disturbed and perverse fascination. Like this is the first time I stood in front of the White House and thought, oh, do you think, is he in there? Do you, do you think he's in there? Is he just, what's he doing in there? Is he just yelling at things? Is he, what's he, is he in there, that guy? Is that guy in there right now? And then there's this other thought, like, you know, what, if I just, you know, if I showed up with a bucket of KFC and some, Maybe some cheeseburgers. Do you think that maybe I could go in and chit-chat with him and see where his head's really at? you think he's in there? A sort of weird panic, apprehensive feeling standing outside the White House, which I've had before in different forms. I've been there for several different presidents, both Democratic and Republican. But this time it was beyond party. It was just like, do you think he's in there? Is he? And I had not had that feeling before. But I, I will report that, you know, even with whatever tremendous tension and, and discomfort that some of us are feeling that the, the nation's capital still seemed to be a, a vibrant uh, uh, representation of uh, a diverse country. I, I did not see the carnage. There was one building that was about ha- partially demolished, and I was wondering, is this, is this a, a construction site or is this the actual beginning of the carnage? I don't know. Jury's out on that. Jury is out on that. So let's now talk to uh, my friend Jonah Ray. Uh, Jonah uh, is uh, entering season two of Hidden America. That's his show, Hidden America with Jonah Ray. It's now streaming on CISO. You can also watch him in MST3K, The Return, that is now on Netflix. This is me and the uh, lovely Jonah Ray back in the Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts.
Raj. So, Jonah, you seem to have, uh, you know, landed on your feet. <laughs> it's real touch and go there for a bit. But I, I landed on one foot and uh, one uh, and ankle. Stayed balanced for a while. Then got the other foot planted somehow. Yeah, I guess so. So I, I literally haven't talked to you for a long time, and we're neighbors, and I guess we just can't find time to hang out. I understand that. Yeah, well, we, we text about music, and the, yeah, and and then yeah. and then there's a couple complaints, and then that's it. And yeah, that's, let's, we, we should do something. Okay. Yeah, but it's really it's really about busy. It's about being busy, and about the fact that I don't really hang out with anybody. Do you not? Do you not do anything? No, dude, I don't do much of anything. I'm do I I I'm I I, I don't know. Maybe I, I'm old. It might be it. I, <laughs> did you expect this of yourself? Like uh, I never did much. I, you know, I, yeah. it's a lot to get me out to a show. It's like I'll go do comedy. I'll, yeah, I'm working a lot. Yeah. But, uh, but, but that's like doing comedy. That's like that's faux uh, social behavior. No, it's, it, no, it's not faux. It's real. Like if I need to, you know, touch work. base with. Well, but <laughs> it's like if you're in a if you're in an office all day, you're like, I have tons of friends that I talk to all the time. Well, but no, but like doing the road stuff, that's the work. But like if I want to just keep, you know, keep in shape, or but like if I want to socialize, like if I feel like you know I haven't talked to a bunch of dudes in a while, <laughs> just talking okay. about chicks and whatever, beers. exactly. Yeah. Or whatever it is, a comedy or what, like yeah. I'll go to the comedy store, you know, I'll go early. I'll stay a little bit after my set and I, I get all caught up. Yeah. I get all the dude energy I need. I get all the sort of like, who's doing what, yeah. you know, uh, see who's doing what, you know, kind of where they're at joke wise. And I like seeing people. So, so it's, it works as sort of a clubhouse when I need it. That's true. Yeah. So I guess, but that's also like I guess a thing that like old guys do. They join country clubs. <laughs> I would call the comedy store so, like, a country club by any stretch of the event. Well, that's more of a VFW hall for Vietnam yeah. vets. It's like a country club in hell. <laughs> yeah. It's just. Well, I don't know if I'm old. Let's not go crazy with it. You I, said it. I'm, I'm, I'm just. I'm, yeah, but that wasn't an invitation oh, to okay. clobber with you know, it. Clobber me with say it. Say it again. Say it again. You're old. You're getting old. Well, I think I'm getting older. No, now. Mark. No. Come on. You got so much <laughs> life to live. So, all right, I also want to talk about MST3000. We're talking about the travel show, right? Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, just uh, dur- last, when we wrapped up the third season of um, of The Meltdown, yeah. uh, we were also uh, wrapping up writing and sh- oh, we were shooting also Mr. Science Theater 3000 and I was writing the second season of Hidden America. All around the same time. Now, what was the uh, what was the uh, inception of Hidden America? What was the pitch? How did it all come together? Uh, well, I just I, I, I love Bourdain and mm. I love his show uh, and I love how how awesome it looks yeah. and also uh, I I like sketch comedy a lot and yeah. I kind of found that you can kind of do a sketch show uh, that's also just a uh, like a parody of Bourdain right. and have it be a secret sketch show within it. So but, was, but it's a real travel show, though. Well, we go to real places, but everyone I talk to is fake. Uh-huh. Like, it's, everyone's playing a character. Right. So it's, you know, I got... Uh, Yvette Nicole Brown from Community, like she's yeah. playing uh, a DEA agent uh, that I talked to while coked up yeah. in Miami. Uh, really you know, coked up? Uh, no, no, okay. no. But I, I, from experience, I was able to uh, oh, good. bring a lot. Draw, yeah. draw from your experience. I was able to no draw from experience of me being stuck in a bathroom with a guy talking about Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Being, oh, being that's underrated. not a bad topic. I mean, yeah. I've, I've had much worse topics in those situations. <laughs> <laughs> at least something you can, that's something you can really lean into yeah it's a, a lot like those it was the, the topics are conversations like i think i might have come inside that girl yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that one go on for a while because that could always trigger like, oh, there's this one time and you're like, I don't know, we need to do it, you know, go that yeah. far into it. No, but petty, why not? Let's sure. go down the rabbit hole. I love it. I'm a big, I'm a big petty fan. So you're coked up. You're talking to. Oh yeah. So we, we, we so we got like a ton of like you know like we have. I go to Nashville and I talk to Jared Logan who like plays like a, a you know Pentecostal preacher and a tent revival. But you um, go to the places. We go to the places. Sometimes we'll fake it out here just if it's easier. But what if you're in the place? Don't you talk to any indigenous yeah. people? Yeah, we talk to some indigenous people, <laughs> some locals. By that I mean locals. Yeah, but I, that's I don't all, want to m- misuse that word. If all as much as I can, all cast local people for uh parts as yeah, much as i can because right. uh like in last year we did um we did new orleans and so i had sean Patton uh play a part and sean Patton was able to bring a ton of local uh perspective right. to the part and same with uh chris true who's an improviser guy down there had him on and it's just people are able to bring a lot of that local flavor to it but why the choice ultimately like uh what stopped you from just doing a real travel show? Because I only want to be involved in fake things. <laughs> when I when I did the Bing commercials, it's like I got a ton of offers of just like, hey, there's like a science show where you go around talking to people with you know doing homegrown science projects. I was like, no, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to be me. Yeah, I don't, I don't. It's a I I I, I don't want to do things that like I I want to try and make the things that I liked when I was growing up. Right. And I never really liked any of those shows. The real things. Yeah. It's you like might have, as well do a riff on like Spinal Tap It. Yeah, exactly. They yeah. got to be in a band yeah. yet. Yeah. They also got right. to have it be fake. But let's talk about this MST thing because for me, like when I was at Comedy Central hosting short attention span, it was sort of there at the same time. And it was like I knew it was a like uh, uh had a very dedicated cult following. Mm-hmm. And it seems like and I talk to Joel too, it seems like one of those things where those people never left. They're just now in their fifties. And they're very excited, but there's a whole new generation of people that have watched it over the years that when it's been available. Yeah. 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 Or DVD or just tapes. But it's it's definitely one of those things where people know every episode. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the show and a lot of my friends were too growing up. When you were a kid? Yeah. When I was a kid, I I loved the show. It's I, I wanted to be on, let's say, you know, I would watch, it's like, you know, early I watched everything on Comedy Central. Right. So essentially I was watching your show. Yeah. Short Time Smith Theater. Were you really? Yes, I was. Huh. Yeah. Me and my bad outfits and my hair looking awkward in that It was set. a weird set, though. Yeah, you yeah. were set up to fail. Okay. Um, Always, though? No, you had some good stuff. <laughs> it was just weird because I had seen you do stand-up on TV. Yeah, and you're like, yet what? You were, you, you were hosting clips of stand-up. I know. No, it was mostly promotional clips of movies and TV shows. Weird pack. Like, stand-up, stand-up was really the stand-up. That's show. right. That was the-, the Mine was sort of like pieces of movie promotions that we That's could right. build, you know, themes and things. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Nothing. We paid for nothing. Like, you know, we <laughs> like when, a, when the, the DVD box set or the videotape box set of the Carson's Greatest Moments came in, we're like- <laughs> Great. We can build a whole show around Carson and act like we made decisions around what we were going to put on. It was fucking nuts. And just they just give you the EPK and this, yeah. Yeah, and it was just nothing was paid for. It was all, you know, and then we'd have these dumb themes. Today's theme is the color green. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. But it was like, but it, there wasn't that much on... Mm-hmm. Comedy Central. Comedy Central. Yeah. So it was like, I was like, watch, I was watching you, Stand Up, Stand Up, Mystery Science Theater 3000, Kids in the Hall was on all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Python and AbFab. Exit 57, Exit, briefly. That was not, Exit 57 came about after the end of uh, Kids in the Hall. Because right. remember, after Kids in the Hall was done, it was Vacant Lot and Exit 57. Well, Vacant Lot was Nick McKenney. Yes, Mark's, Mark's brother, brother. And Exit 57 and, and was- Paul Greenberg. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exit 57 was Amy Sedaris, Paul Colbert, Danilo, and Colbert. 
And Mitch Rouse. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what I loved, like uh, Jody Lennon. Uh, that's right. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I was always thinking about was the the opening of Vacant Lot might be the coolest sketch show opening of all time. The running was it? Had no, no. Of... It's like they're sitting in a dilapidated house and right. then up, uh, pretty vacant. By mm-hmm. the Sex Pistols starts playing and then wind starts blowing and then the entire house yeah there's like just falls out down around them yeah i, I was like it was like a fucking sex pistol song and this cool set piece oh, for you it was like ah, oh, yeah <laughs> it's the, it's that venn diagram where yeah, you find yeah. yourself in the middle of it and that was always the thing about watching mst too it's like you know they throw out references to zappa while you're a kid like that's starting to get into music starting to get into comedy yeah, yeah. and everyone starts to kind of yeah there's know, a portal it's a portal yeah. Yeah. portal into another world yeah exactly yeah well, it's like these people like the same things i do that's a huge or thing. like what's that that guy likes it i gotta check it out yeah 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 exactly so you're the main guy i'm the new uh test subject yeah i'm the joel mike than me yeah it's uh you know it's what what how what, how'd you feel when you got it like that must have been like you're like what well when he asked me it was still like not a real thing it's like it wasn't the the kickstarter was long long before that he was still kind of thinking about like Joel was like, he's like, yeah, I'm thinking about bringing it back, but I want to start slowly, maybe incubate it at a theater in Philly. Really? So I'd want you to move out to Philly. Is he in Philly? He's outside of Philly. No, I didn't. Know yeah, in Pennsylvania, and um, and I was kind of like, oh, that's weird. And then it just it just kind of was this thing where he wanted me to do, it, and I was like, we weren't sure what it was going to be, but then as it started, he got the rights back, and then the kickstarter, he was like, he's like, you're the guy. So it was, I had it known it that I would be the guy for a while. Yeah. And then, you but know. you didn't know if it was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I was, it was nice to kind of know for a while before it was announced just so I could steal myself from all the, uh, you know, nerd anger and rage. Uh-huh. Uh, you oh know. yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a hipster looking, yeah, dude. Yeah, uh, you know, a lot of like, it's a, you know, the, the, the meanest comments I get on the internet. I'll look at their profiles, and they usually just kind of look like me, which is like <laughs> makes me believe. It's like, oh, they hate me because they are me. Yeah, and I'd be doing the same thing probably. Yeah, because I remember when Mike took over for Joel, there was a lot of, a lot of anger towards Mike, and then there was like from these like this this subculture. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. But which is weird because it's like me and Mike, my friends, none of us care. Like we're just like, it's still a show about a guy and some robots and Yeah, but like they should be happy the show's coming back. Yeah. Like, these, a lot of people are. I these purists are. are like, it's not gonna no, it's gonna be different. Yeah. What's well, it's funny, every once in a while like I'll like I'll see a guy go, I don't like I don't like Tom Servo's new voice, which is Baron Vaughn doing it. Yeah. I'm just kinda like Baron Vaughn's like one of the yeah. like, like the most talented like Voice you know, guys, voice guys, and he's he's a great singer. And he can do impressions, and then like and the guys, I don't know. It just seems like kind of it's like I mean, why is he why does he have to be black? I go, oh, there it is, oh, there it is. Hello, right now, Confederate flag. Yeah, you've dismissed <laughs> you've, you've dismissed anything you've ever said. <laughs> yeah, it just it's I I but it's great. It's been overwhelmingly positive for anything I've done before. It's uh, a lot of people seem to really dig it. So, uh, how's the new house? It's great. It's a constant source of uh, frustration. Our front door doesn't seem to want to open up or close now. So. Oh, really? Yeah. From we're the on rain. a clay, we're From on the a clay lot. Yeah, so everything shifts around. Yeah, well, that's what happens to houses. It, it, you know, you could do what I do, just let it all fall to shit. Yeah, but that's, I like it. You you want your house to represent you as a person. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Is that it? No, but, you know, I'll get a new door. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, when completely necessary, I get a new door and it's got windows. So that is progress. That is progress. You're See, not keeping things out. That's right. Yeah. When when it gets ugly, when it, things start to really, like, like I got to do something, I'll do something. That's where I take the evolutionary step. It's a matter of anxiety and dread and just sort of like, oh, it's going to be a pain in the ass. But then when when I have to, you I do. do it. Yeah. I take the step. That's life, though. 
I think it is. I got to ask you. Uh, yeah. You've had glasses for a long time. I have. Uh, I just got LASIK. Okay. Uh, did you ever think about that? Yeah. You can't do it? No, I mean, it's like, why? I mean, how are you feeling about it? Weird. Yeah. It's I mean, weird. Like, I don't love, I mean, I like my face okay, but it's just as jarring to me as to anyone else without glasses. Yeah. No, that's what I'm dealing with. That's what I'm dealing with right now. I still like, I'll be walking down the street and I'll catch a reflection in a storefront and I'll be like, I don't, I don't like that. Oh, you, have, yeah. you left your glasses at home. Yeah. It is really, it is. I'm, I'm really odd. Uh, I'm, the whole thing is that if there's an earthquake mm-hmm. and I lose my glasses, I'd be, I'd be fucked. Oh, so it was practical in it's your practical. mind. Yeah. And hey, I can, when the know, end comes. I, did I can't a, be hanging on to those things. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, I want to be able to see when I, I'm running. I don't want to like. I ended like last year. I was shooting a horror movie, and it was yeah. at night, and I had to be like running through the brush. And right when they called cut, I stop. I put my glasses on. And there was these. I almost ran into these like dead branches, like just broken branches sticking straight out. Oh my! I would have gone right into it with my. Oh face. my god! I, yeah. Okay, so I understand the practical elements, but it, did it work? I mean, can you see like 2020? Like, I don't know if it's 2020 because I don't know really what that would be. Yeah, um, it's things are a little blurry. The halos at night while driving is are a bit much, like big, you know, bright halos that, around. Is lights. that a common? That's a common thing that goes away after a little bit. But yeah. like the fact that I can, you know, see that that says Rolling Stones, I wouldn't have been able to tell that that says Rolling Stones, right? Uh, or that says Rolling Stones, or you got a lot of Rolling Stones stuff everywhere. Come Everything on. is like, come on, yeah. where's the other one? You're making that up. That's a big poster of yeah. There. No, I can read anything. We all die alone. Everything in here. <laughs> Where does it say that? Uh, it's in that second sack. Portraits. We all die alone. Aphrodisiac. Those are graphic novels. That should be exciting for you to see. Oh, don't do that. What? Don't no. just. Oh, what? oh, you'd love it. Like I remember when the uh, Star Wars episode one came out. I was working at a record store. I was like, Hey, how about that new Star Wars? Like I, I didn't see. He's like, What? You? Oh, come on. Surely you. If anyone in this room, you. Yeah. You know me and my self-esteem. It really is teetering on the brink. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, it's, uh, I'm the type of guy that uh, seeks out YouTube comments. Yeah. Oh, God. No, I can't. <laughs> I do. I, I do you look so- at comments? Do you look at stuff like that? Not really. Sometimes, like, I don't do Facebook hardly at all. I mean, the show, I have a Facebook fan page, and I'll go look at them occasionally. Yeah. But uh, there's no other comments I would look at. I'm not writing for Twitter anymore. Yeah. I yeah. don't do it. Yeah, save it. Yeah, and that's weird. It's like, you know, once I, it really happened after the election where I was like, I don't want to make jokes and I don't want to fight with Nazis. Yeah. So that was like, it just put, took me out of it and mm-hmm. I kind of stayed out and it was like, well, this isn't bad. Yeah, I'll occasionally like turn it off or take it off my phone. I, find I took it off looking. my phone, but I still go through yeah. the web. You know, like I don't have yeah. the app on my phone anymore. That's good. It is good. But yeah. I'll still look, I'll go through the browser and it's a little harder. Yeah, it takes. A, I do the same thing. Yeah. I, go, I don't need this app on my phone yet. Yeah, I'm like signing I'm scrolling. in. The, yeah, but I scroll through like it yeah. doesn't separate things. In yeah, the so you're like, where's one thing about me? Yeah, there was a. It was funny when, you know, I, I think, I think Bourdain's show Parts Unknown is so good, and I think it gets better and better. Yeah. Um, but like he, he's he's in a Hidden America, and he posted a clip from it on his Facebook page. Yeah. And there was a couple, you know, there was a couple comments about the actual clip, but mo- a lot of it were just people going, "Your show sucks now." To Bourdain. Yeah. Not that he's going to see. He's not going to look at his fucking Facebook fan page. You don't think, but you'd be surprised who does. That's a good point. You know, like you, you make these assumptions about certain people like that guy, would. he's above it, but like, mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone, rem- everyone's got a spare hour. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> they want to do some emotional cutting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the only guy I know who probably doesn't do any of that is Louie. Really? 
Yeah, he's off Twitter. He just he won't do it. It's principle with him. I think people who know they're compulsive like can't you know it, they know the time suck of it. But he's just sort of like fuck it. You know, I mean, when something breaks in the news or there's some bullshit out in the you know the press world, it gets back to him. But he doesn't do any of that other shit. Yeah, I mean that's the there's there's sometimes a, a little bit inside of me that makes me go, oh man, I w- I want to get to a point where I don't. Like I just do the work and I don't care about the well, social that's what, aspect. Right. Of well, it. that's what I tried to do. That this last tour, I just wasn't gonna be that guy tweeting dates twice a day. I yeah. just, I'm like, fuck it. If the theater tweets it, I'll retweet it. And I'm just not gonna get hung up on that. You know, Facebook. You know, like I put all the dates on Facebook uh, on the fan page and just sort of like that's it. And I, I would retweet the theaters and sometimes go like, come on, there's a few more tickets left. Yeah. But I didn't get into that cycle. Of like two or three times. I just like, fuck it. If he, you know, like I I got the podcast, you know, if they're going to come, they're going to come. Yeah. And it, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, do you feel, felt you feel better? Like, it's like, not doing that. Well, like, no, just like, not like, just not just that, but do you feel that there's less anxiety? Uh, well, yeah, because like, you, you know, the, the, the downside of Twitter is you really don't know how many people see what you tweet, depending on how many people they follow or how compulsive they are about looking at their feed. Your number of followers in the big picture doesn't really add up to much. No. And, you know, it's like you may be able to remind people because a lot of times people get on and I realize they don't listen to the podcast in order or whatever, and they may not hear about it. But like literally the day after I do a, pl- a place, after I tweeted it 90 times, Someone from that place were like, "What are you doing, in DC?" I'm like, "Fuck!" Yeah. I was just fucking, na- and it's like, "Fuck this!" Yeah, like you know, go old school. You know, let the let the venue promote it. I'll do a radio show if I have to, but like you know, yeah, I think I think that's that's good, and then you know, the just I like that idea of just doing doing the work. And a and- lot of people aren't on Twitter. No, that's the weird thing. I, I think my producer told me that 79 percent of adults are not. And there's part of me that's like, why can't I be part of that majority? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Aren't are, aren't we allowed though? Like, to say there was so much in in comedy in the past, you know, ten years. It's there's so much been put on the social media aspect because of some people succeeding off of it because of Dane Cook's MySpace page. It's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a long time ago, and I I I, I like to think that we can all disconnect. I you know, I wish Twitter would shut it off for a fucking week. That'd I wish great. Zuckerberg and whoever's in charge over at Twitter were just sort of like we're taking or taking a week off, just to like let the president sit and fester in his own yeah. garbage for <laughs> for a week and let you know, give the country a rest. Yeah, give the country. Like, where's that? Where's the uh, the uh, hiatus of social networking platforms? Yeah, we, we should start instituting like a summer, a spring break. For yeah, the internet. that'd be amazing. That'd be real nice. Everyone's like spring break. Everyone go outside. Yeah. Uh, or just at least those two platforms just facebook and twitter shut them off for a week see how people let people start talking again yeah in real time yeah i do still like instagram though still a fan of instagram i I got on it and i was i go through flurries of it but then i'm like i don't fucking want to take a picture of that do i gotta take a picture of my sandwich no no you don't right i like put i like making videos and putting like putting music to them and putting them up and stuff like that i I don't i I don't use my time correctly i guess for me it's like it's uh i i'll like do videos and put music on like in like edit it on the phone like an iMovie app on the phone and I do that as a like it's almost instead of playing a video game or yeah. going on Twitter yeah. or reading like you know so you feel like you've done something I feel like I've made something, something. Yeah. And it, it just kind of it's almost like a little morphine drip of uh you know creativity yeah. being like hey you you did something yeah no I, I I appreciate that and I just don't I don't know I don't budget time well I always feel like I'm chasing my my own ass 
And when I sit down, sometimes I play some guitar. That's nice because that's you know, all your thing. That's why I started a new band just because I wanted to have a like kind of a meditation. Yeah, I like playing drums because it's like you're using your creative brain in a different way than you normally are right. with writing. Yeah, um, and it there's no more now Zen kind of feeling than because you're just doing the thing you're doing right then. You can't really do anything else, right? Because you're just thinking about the next hit, the next strum, the next lick. Like, well, the thing the thing I do that's like so stupid and old school. Like, God forbid I learn how to use GarageBand for something other than just talking on these mics but like on my phone like I'll, I'll tape sets on my phone and then I'll like I'll come up with a lick in a very raw form and I'll be like I better I better record that here's the thing about GarageBand you already know how to use it if the interface is so is so easy mm -hmm. that like if you know how to do this you just kind of you, you go okay press record I can sh I can show you if you need oh let's do that now. that's for years since I got a MacBook I've been making songs on GarageBand like it's the best it's it's so much fun. Right, no, okay let's do that now Are we done talking about your shit yeah I, uh, yeah let's All do right. it okay thanks <laughs> jonah that was me and jonah season two of hidden america with jonah ray now streaming on CISO and the new mst3k the return on netflix love talking to jonah ray now Joel Hodgson, oh my God, Joel Hodgson, how is that so hard? Joel Hodgson, it is hard, it's hard for me, that name. Joel is uh, somebody I've known about and known of for many years because back in the day when I was hosting a show on the old Comedy Central, when I was uh, slowly putting short attention span theater to bed after many years, uh, in what we in 92, 93, maybe 93, 94. I don't remember when the hell it was, but I was in-house over there and MST3K, the original run, was still going on. So I always had clips of Joel. I always saw Joel's stuff around. I always knew that MST3K was popular. I didn't watch it at that time. Uh, I've watched a bit of it, but I, I mean, I just knew that Joel and I worked for the same entity and I saw a lot of Joel's face and I knew he was around, but I'd never met him before. And I knew that MST3K was a brilliant thing. But I'd never met him before. And over time, I realized I'd heard that, you know, he's a, a genius, that he's a, he used to do stand-up. I knew all these things about him, but I'd never met him. And I was, pretty, uh, I was pretty excited to get an opportunity to meet him, you know. The creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000, and you can watch classic episodes on Netflix, plus the brand new 14 uh, episodes with Jonah. Patton Oswalt, Felicia Day, Baron Vaughn, and a lot more people. They've restaffed the original characters, but there's also some other new stuff going on. So this is me and the uh, and the great uh, Joel Hodgson in the garage. So Joel, I think that you know we were uh, uh, you're older than me. But I, I certainly obviously remember the first iteration of Mystery Science Theater 3000. And then, but like I knew, like I didn't know who you were. And you were one of those guys that everyone talked about. Like uh, this guy's beyond, you know, he's uh, at another level <laughs> creatively. Well, know what you were. I mean, that, that people love that show. And and I, I, I wish I'd watch more of it. But I think that, you know, I was more concerned with drugs and, and music than I, I feel like. And you knew Kinnison, and I want to talk about Kinnison too. So, but this later. is the thing: like, I don't know how many people know that you know you were hammering away 
at uh, at comedy. But also, I don't know if any, how many people know that. How much did you raise on this Kickstarter for the new one? It was like altogether over over six million dollars. And be, because there was like whatever the nerd culture was now, what you found them then. Like, there's a very specific type of sci-fi, kind of like, you know, robot, kind of nerd guy. You should see the look on his face when he's describing this. He seems like, actually, I'm just doing color commentary. Am I wrong? No, but you seem genuinely happy when you describe that. Well, no, but I'm just so happy that so many of them are like, I'm going to give Joel money to make more, and they've got to be my age. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. you grab it's them. between, like... But there's a lot of them that are 35, mm-hmm. so that's like 35 and up. Right. Like they were 12 when it came out. Right. There's a lot of them like that. Right. When when people know me from Short Attention Span Theater, I'm like, you must have been a child. Yeah. It's a little weird. Makes right. you feel old. I don't yeah. feel bad about it. Yeah, no. But, but and when, I'm sure they appreciated it. Like oh, yeah. They, it was like really important to those people. I think the reason why I was bitter- at that time was that you know short attention span theater mystery science theater like people would get some things confused but also you were doing this brilliant thing and you know i was you know hosting a clip show based on promotional material but listen i gotta i gotta tell you something though when they hired us i think they thought we were gonna do that like i think it's a huge misunderstanding that they even really got let us do mystery science theater was that with comedy network Pre Comedy Central, yeah, it or? was comedy. It was Comedy Channel, and comedy then Comedy Channel, Channel right. merged with Ha for like nine or ten months, and then it became Comedy Central. So we were in Comedy Channel, Comedy Channel Ha, Comedy Central, and and I really think when I first met those guys, they were really treating it like this is going to be MTV with comedy. Yeah, and I think they thought, oh, we'll just get Joel and these robots to host clips. And I think that's what they were thinking. And then we refused to come to New York. We said, we're not coming to New York to do the show. We have to stay in Minneapolis. Uh, you can't afford it to pay us enough. And the, the studio that was too it. small. And we said no. And then they had to rethink us. But I really think they thought, like, you know how it was when Higgins, Boys, and Gruber, Tommy Sledge, yeah. Rachel Sweet, it was everybody was doing that. And then they started to develop programming. And the last... The last remnant of that was short attention span theater. But I believed when they started, it was all based on an MTV model, and they thought, we'll have VJs who host comedy clips all the time. Yeah, I think that's true. They really thought and that, that. That was also the mystery of you. Is that like, where, does, where are they coming from? Because I just looked at the, da- at the dates. You know, you were in the middle of You were in the prime of it when I was hosting that show. But you were never around. Like, in yeah. that building, at H- I was at HBO downtown. Yeah. It wasn't even a real studio. It was an office space. The ceilings were uh, like this, like, like this, this low. It was crazy to yeah, shoot in. They, yeah, they had to hang lights from the. But ceiling. you were the mystery man. It's like, oh no, that's all made in a lab in Minneapolis. <laughs> we, we, it we, really, it really, in in some ways, uh, it really served us. In other ways, it really hurt us because we weren't really in the culture of show business. So but that's they could, better. They could kind of ignore us on certain things. But it picked. But look at it. You just raised six million dollars from thirty-five to sixty-year-olds. Who are excited yeah. to see the, yeah. the puppets come back, the yeah. robots. That's right. That's right. I, yeah. But but let's go back because the thing that like I wasn't mad at you or anything. I was uh you know it, it was I was sort of mystified by the the whole because I wasn't I was new to show business other than being just a sweaty stand up. I was a child in a lot of ways. Were you? Uh, didn't you start in San Francisco? Not really. Really? Where did you start? 
I, uh, I, after college, I did it maybe twice in college. In 1986, I moved out here and became a doorman at the comedy store. And I got all fucked up on drugs. And by 80, late 87, I moved back to Boston where I went to college. And that's really where I started. And then that's a good town to do stand up in. Yeah, it was great. You know, yeah, yeah I did. I, I came in second in a fest in the riot, and uh, you know, and I started working doing all those one nighters. And then, um, and then in '89, I moved to New York, and I was going back and forth making money. And then, like '92, after hitting the wall on uh, you know losing my sobriety again, I scrambled out to San Fran. But yeah, it was like it was uh, San Francisco and Boston, L.A. and New York. Yeah, and uh, Minneapolis, Chicago. That's how I looked at it. I think it was sister cities where that's the right. really pretty hot comedy that's true scenes yeah but like you started so what you come from how big's your family uh there's five of us three really? kids and two adults yeah and you work with your brother sometimes yeah we did for years not anymore but yeah we did for years when i used to live out here we had a production company together but when did you start so like what what what, what business was your old man in Oh, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a teacher. My mom was a nurse and then taught nursing and my dad was like a teacher pretty much his whole career. Like high school? Uh, he taught, like, he started out grade school. He was like my actual principal when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> and, and my friend Billy Creshawn went up to him and he, and he said, Hey, I know your little brother. <laughs> and uh, he thought we were brothers. And... um and yeah, so he was pretty much involved with education, like his whole career, either selling curriculum for some companies or teaching. He taught at college. Selling curriculum. So, yeah. You know, like SRA. Do you remember SRA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The interdisciplinary, like- Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, kind of colored thing. It was kind of during the worst time in education in the country's history, and they could sell stuff like that. These little boxes that the kids read, these little pamphlets, and then got tested on. Oh, right. It was all individual. So was that like a commission sales gig, or was it? I think it... so, yeah. Interesting. So. Yeah. But they're noble people. They they work with the well, children he and really, the sick. Actually, he was an educator, and he really cared about it, so he was in it. You know, He was really living it, and I think he was happy. I think he liked it. Yeah, and yeah. you're the oldest or the middle? I'm or... the middle kid, yeah. So where does... um. Where did like where does the interest in in show business come from? Where how did you? God, I don't I don't know how to I don't even know how to explain it because man, from the time I was can remember, yeah, I was like fascinated with it. Like um, who in particular? Well, I can remember being in kin in nursery school, right? And they'd sing, "Do you know the Muffin Man?" And I'd yeah. go, "Let's sing, Do you know the Mask Man?" Like I I had gone into a novelty shop. And it, uh, in Madison, the Moon Fun Shop, and the walls were lined with like Don Post monster masks. Yeah, and yeah. I was like going, "Holy shit, that's incredible!" And so I was in, <laughs> I was five, and I'm going I, masks. Like I want to be a mask man. I want to know where those masks are. I want to dress up. Yeah. So from the time I remember it, I just was like, I, you know, it's one of those weird things where you're, you, it's possible that you just de decide super young that that's who you are. Like I got a, I'm just, I was just fascinated with it, but I didn't know how to get to it because I was in- But it was masks. I was in so Southern Wisconsin, but that, that's all analogous, sure. I think, because masks, right. Horror movies, costumes, yeah, movies, superheroes. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing, but Theater. for some reason- it's the yeah, oldest. Yeah, for some reason I'm sitting there going, yeah, I got to get near those masks somehow. I got to get part. I have to find out about them. Yeah. I want to sing about them. Yeah. I want to sing about being the mask man. Yeah. 
And then I remember I could hardly say it. it. When I said masks, I kept going, masks, man. And they kept going, what? Masks, man? Do you know the mask, man? Yeah. It was so, yeah. But even, that was when I was five, and that was like the earliest wow. memory. So anytime I'd see, and back then, you know, show business was so... I mean, media was so dull that and when, intimate. There was only you only had a few options. Yeah, like three channels. Yeah, but when something was on, like the Muppets were on, Ed Sullivan it is electrifying. Like, oh my god, it made my day. There's a guy with a puppet on TV. Oh, you're like, like you know? so you're always a puppet guy. Yeah, it's like puppets, magic, ventriloquism. Who was the first mat? Oh yeah, you like oh, yeah. I had I, a ventriloquist dummy. Really? Yeah, I had to. You know, they for they had Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen available yeah. at some time. Yeah. And I had I had uh, I think my brother had the Edgar not Edgar Bergen Mortimer Snurd. That's the one I had. Mortimer you had Snurd, yeah, the goofy one. Yeah, and all the other kids. Even then, all the other kids had Danny O'Day, and I felt like I'm not going to do Danny O'Day because the other kids have. Danny O'Day, I gotta, I have to break Which out. Which one's Danny O'Day? He's like, he's the most classic looking one. He looks like a Who's smaller he? version in the Juro novelty doll ventriloquist figure Parthenon. Yes, you've got Danny O'Day, which is the smallest one, who looks the most like a ventriloquist dummy. Then yeah. you have, then you have Charlie McCarthy, who had a monocle and a and little the slit there and, yeah. a ta- and a top hat. Then you had Mortimer Snurd. Then yeah. later they rolled out. Um, Oh shoot! Who was the black guy? Um, oh, Lester and Willie. <laughs> Willie Tyler and Lester. Yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, um, that was like a big thing, and I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to get into ventriloquism, I mean, in fourth grade, I had a teacher who identified like I was really interested in it, and she started playing this record in school, instant ventriloquism, and we'd practice ventriloquism in her fourth grade class. And there were like four kids who had dummies and we'd bring our dummies in and practice. (laughs) Like she was unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I was there. I was like, so in my, that year, my, my, um, my, my picture for my class picture is me with my ventriloquist dummy. I brought my ventriloquist dummy to get it. I was thinking that's how I'd get an eight by 10. Like yeah, all right. My class picture. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm smiling so you could, so I, and the dummy's mouth is open and I'm like saying, see, I'm doing ventriloquism because I could actually uh, talk with the dummy. So you had that I, weird smile? Yeah, I, yeah. Weird, I had the weird smile. <laughs> and it was all like. I am smiling. And you think, I'm smiling. Yeah. Hi. Hey, how's it going, Joel? <laughs> this is fantastic. And um, the, um, and you'd think somebody would have stopped me, right? Like yeah. some adult would have gone, right. like, no, do you, you really can, want to do that? Yeah. We're taking this class picture. Put the doll yeah, down. Put, put the, down the toy. Put the toy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm shocked, man. They let me be, though. Those, that, that's what's lovely about the Midwest is- That is, that's right. Nobody got, everybody liked it. Everybody was like, that's amusing. I mean, I remember I, I was carrying, in the neighborhood, I was carrying my ventriloquist dummy over to my friend's house and- his mom opened the door and she goes, someday you're going to go really far. You're going to go really far with that. With the dummy. Yeah. With, she just, with Edgar Bergen's dummy. She just was dummy. smiling. Yeah. And no one said, you're wrong. You know, this is wrong. You're wasting your time. I never, Well, that was, I don't think I ever heard it. Well, like, that's interesting about the teacher too, that like, I, I, that, that idea that like, well, if these kids are excited about this, let's, let's, it's, it's harmless and they're excited and they're engaging. Yeah. Let them do it. Yeah. It was really bizarre but i i don't know 
How old I don't do know you? how it happened. I'm 57. So you're a little older than me. So you know, ventriloquism, for the, for most practical purposes, was not a lively art form at that time, really. It was the sort of the end of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But it was sort of fascinating, because I remember being fascinated with it, and I don't know what... The idea of throwing your voice, or the idea... Like, I don't even know that I saw a lot of ventriloquists when I got that dummy. And I didn't really commit to it like you. I had it, and I tried it, kind of, but I wasn't in we're at that age where you're like trying to find a right. sign, a sign, an identity. Yeah. And that was a big part. Like, I'm not interesting enough, but if I held this thing and I could make him appear like a character, right? then I'm interesting. You yeah. Know, then I have a place to be. Sure. You know? Sure. And, so. and you kind of can divert a little of the <laughs> attention off of you through because you're insecure onto this thing. Yeah. So if and you it, just had the skill. And it's like Clark Kent. It's like, uh, it's like, uh, Bruce Wayne, because yeah. you're like I'm. I'm really doing all this, but you can't tell. Right, right. I'm, the, I'm really clever, but I'm acting like I'm not. It's like it's a confection, right? You know, social confection sure. in a way. Like, yeah, it, yeah. Well, that's it. Well, you know, you talk to a lot of guys, and it's like it was a the the popularity thing about being insecure, feeling like an outsider when you're comic or somebody who's prone towards that. You know, you either do it in a way that's pleasant or you disrupt everything. And yeah. it, it's really about... Yeah. It, well, what did you do? What happened? I was just a smart ass. Well, how, what, were your, what were your parents like, well, socially? Like, what is, what, how did they behave? Were they like... They were kind of like, you know, self-involved, hipstery. Kind, you know, they were kind of contemporary. Uh, you know, always... They're both from the East Coast. My dad was a doctor, but we lived in New Mexico. So they were graceful socially, right? They not really. They were embarrassing. Not really. Really? They were he's all, a doctor and not but, socially skilled? But he's, no, he's just inappropriate. Like, he was socially skilled, but he was always the guy like, uh, oh, what's he going to say? You know, like, he wasn't... You know, he right. wasn't that... Uh, and my mother was always embarrassing. They're very vain, but this is going on too long. But they were um, they were sort of ice storm parents. Gotcha, gotcha. You know? Right, right. And not not the uh, Joan Allen, but the uh, Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein. Yeah, great. I, yeah. <laughs> I love that reference. Yeah, that was Let's the time. Let's have a key party. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. Were, I think they were at one of those. That's great. You know, I, I get great. that feeling. Okay. Yeah. I get it. So Not Midwest. So you wanted to be funny, but you weren't exactly cueing off them the way they behaved, or were they maybe showing you the wrong way to be funny? Well, I think I was fighting them. I think that they were so self-involved that I needed to get attention elsewhere. Yeah. That was the thing. Yeah. So I, and, and I always was, uh, uh, you know, trying to undermine structures you know innately right like right. the teacher like if i was bored i'd fuck with the teacher yeah i made yeah. a few hebrew school teachers cry and i got kicked out of a private school just because of my dumb mouth <laughs> wow yeah that's wow. that's what i come from but you you seem to do it a little nicer yeah no my um uh, my parents were really good socially and my dad was like really funny and i i cued a lot off him but i didn't really realize it at yeah. the time. So he actually was kind of building, he actually was kind of making a little path, but I don't think he ever thought like, it was all by example. He was kind of just doing it. He never said, hey, Joe, why don't you do this? It was it was almost like firewalled 
and later I realized, wow, it's kind of similar to what some of the stuff my dad would do. But also, like, I, I imagine that they were uh, uh, selfless enough and responsible enough being teachers to afford you the space, but also give you uh, uh, the, you know, you learn the value of education and all that and doing your shit, right? They, you know what's weird is they never presumed I should go to college. Like, that wasn't even in there. <laughs> like, the only reason I went to college was... Those are interesting educators. Yeah, even, yeah, I think they're worried about the money or something but it's yeah. like it was like i remember going to college and f- it finally dawned on me like this is fantastic these women are beautiful i get it yeah this is why yeah this is fantastic yeah like we're gonna listen to records with really cute girls it's gonna be great <laughs> you know like and it was it really yeah. was but I, it was exactly the right thing for me to do I was you still, know. I think in my point in college, I was still sort of looking for the identity thing. So I, I kind of moved into a kind of beatnik, kind of outsider, arty thing. Like the that's, gr- that's great. Hanging out and listening to records with girls was part of it, but I was more involved with smoking cigarettes and, and uh, reading books with the angry dudes. I didn't do that till like right at the end of college. That's when that all happened. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Like, yeah, s- yeah we would drum. Do you remember drum? Do you still smoke? No. Do you remember drum cigarettes? Like the, oh, you yeah, roll, you roll them up. So great. Roll, buglers were the old school ones. Oh, yeah, the drums right. were a little more exotic and, and, from uh, Belgium, I think. Beaties, the like little tiny Indian ones with Yeah, yeah I never liked those. Yeah, that was intense. They were the yeah. Jarum clove cigarettes. Oh, I, yeah. was a, yeah. been, I was smoking Marlboro Reds from you know when I was in junior high, so like I was pretty connected to that. that <laughs> yeah, I didn't you get should to. have just gone all the way and smoked Cools. Like just yeah, Cools were more of a blues man thing. Yeah, the mentholated ones. I tried them, you know, and I tried. Uh, I tried smoke rolling those my own. When you're sick, sure. Yeah, yeah the mentholate. Open up the lungs. <laughs> yeah. I just remembered something though, Joel. When I was a kid, when I was in third grade, I did some stage work. Like I was able to recite all the presidents in order, and I did that in front of the class in third grade. And then I put together skits with this kid Jerry, Jerry Graves. And he played Grover, and I was the setup guy. We did a comedy team thing with this. Awesome. Uh, so I just uh, and so uh, it must have worked, right? Well, it was something, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it was sort of an impressive skill. I'd learned the presidents from a coin collection booklet, and I didn't have the coins, like a commemorative coin collection yeah. book. But I didn't have the coins. I just had the book, and I just memorized them in order. Yeah. I, so That's you know, I, I, you know, it, it's easy to kill with that. You just got to nail it. You know, you no laughs expected. Hmm. Just get them all, and have the teacher go, "Yep." <laughs> That's awesome. But That's awesome. so when did it evolve into something that you were like serious about? Well, and what was that? Well, listen, okay. A lot of my stuff like came um like I said from my dad, and we were like in a big part of this is the church, like we were in the like Methodist evangelical church oh. in the in the Midwest. So, you were Christians? Yeah. Oh. And so that has a lot to do with what I do because First time I heard live music was in church. First time I saw like a movie projected was probably in church. First time I saw magic show was in church. It's like they were always kind of like a little bit suspicious of entertainment on the outside world, which is rightly so, you sure. know. And they would it's a entertain. corrupting, horrible influence. Well, it's part of everything. Part of it is, you know, part <laughs> sure. of it is, but yeah. it's like. But part of it's awesome, and so it's like they were a little bit like suspicious, and 
And so that that was a big, there's a big emphasis on being able to entertain. So there was like a pocket that I got swept into like, right. hey, you do ventriloquism? Great. Do this father-daughter banquet. I was like doing gigs, making money How like old? in the church, like seventh grade. I had a magic show. I'd do birthday parties. I did a, I was a clown. I like ran the, rode the unicycle. So you were a clown, magic, ventriloquist guy. Yeah. Yeah. Full, anything full I could do, anything I could do. But those that, are the all ages fair. Can't lose. Yeah. yeah right. And From I was three doing to 30. that. Yeah. I was doing that and there was a lot of places to play. How good was your magic? How good were your I chops? Was, I was pretty, I was pretty good. Like right away I, um, Right away, I I was capable, but I understood that about being funny, like that was a really cool thing. Yeah. And so I started to do that more and more. And so I was like working a lot and there was a magic club in Green Bay that I'd go to and we'd like learn about magic. So you're like 13? Yeah, 13, 14. I got just embedded. I was that like kid magician. That was kind of my identity. Right. And so you had business cards and a picture? Yeah. Um, yeah, and w- w- let me ask about the evangelical evangelical church at that time in the Midwest. This is not; these aren't born again Christians. These are sort of grounded. They're born sort- again, but this is before they got kind of commandeered by the Republicans in a way. Right, like they right, were. Right. It was a lot more like uh, the Jesus story is very apolitical, really. When right. you look at it, of so course, it was yeah. kind of like they. This is before they got kind of kind of swept into that and so it was a lot more it was a lot different and um it was just like again my experience there overall with the midwest is people were very nice and very encouraging so i that's kind of where i was at yeah they were just enthused at what i was doing and thought it was a charming or something sure sure are you still there with the christian yeah oh yeah yeah? i am held up i'm a believer held up i mean you know, it's like anybody, it's faith so vacillates, yeah. right? Sometimes right. I don't believe it, sometimes I do. Yeah. But I'm I like I'm like uh, I like I believe I'm really grateful for the culture of it. That like I like I'm like I'm kind of explaining like I I kind of got to be in there and it kind of accelerated my growth in a way like doing what I wanted to do and everybody was really nice to me about well, I, it. Well, I tell you, if you're not fighting that battle, if you're not fighting against God, there's a relief to it. That's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's I, covered. What's you know, that yeah. Gary Painter song? I fought the Lord and the Lord won. Ralph know. Records. Well, Ralph Records. <laughs> sure, Ralph right? Records. So you, you you held on to your faith. It gave you a good foundation, yeah. and it gave you your early opportunities to perform and also take in uh, entertainment product, and, no matter how compromised it may be by the Jesus. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's great i gotta remember that but uh but but you know it was in you knew you wanted to be up there yeah i struggle with it so much like that was a big thing in college i went to a christian college oh really was, like, which one bethel college bethel uh-huh. university uh-huh. And so you really only were playing records with girls what do you mean? Well, I what mean, like, how, like, uh, what, what was the sex? You mean, did situation? I swing with dudes? No, no. I mean, like, you know, it just seems like at Christian college, maybe I'm projecting that maybe it, it, it there wasn't a lot of drugs and fucking, was there? Or was there more? I think uh, wh- wh- <laughs> what it was is it wasn't decreed. That thing that was great is it wasn't decreed. You're in college, you have yeah. to drink and fuck now. Right, right. Everybody kind of had to go on their own and go on walkabout. Uh-huh. Right. And kind of figure out for themselves. So it happened. Walkabout on campus. Yeah, like, sexual we, walkabout. Yeah, we lost that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 
So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot people don't get about it. I I like- About what? About Christian college and Mm -hmm. what the kids are doing. Because they're really, the people that I found did so much for me for critical thinking and just like ideas. People or teachers? The the kids I was hanging out with, the kids I found at that school who were kind of outsiders, but they really- you know, they kind of, yeah, we were like doing the bohemian thing towards sure. the end and yeah. reading cool books and yeah. smoking cigarettes and yeah. having a well, drink. Well, no, it has to happen eventually, but like, I, I'm not anti-Christian. I, I think that there's something uh, uh, pretty amazing about having a, a, a sort of w- what is supposed to be a, a moral foundation or a spiritual foundation yeah. or or the, the this, at least to have those questions answered and, and allow that to happen. Uh it's not terrible. It's a str- it's a struggle if you really want to think about it and really make make really try to find your way regardless of what you believe. Yeah. Everybody's got to kind of do that. Right. And so that was just the that was just the the hand that I was dealt. Right. And I have to say it wasn't that bad. Now ultimately um you know there's things that I you know there's things that you don't like about it cuz there's by and large a lot of people that could be kind of mindless and just accept it and are kind of towing the company line about it. I'm I not really w- talking about those people. And I think that once the the dubiousness of righteousness is, is where I, you know, I, I think it runs into trouble. I mean, you know, guy fanatics are not fanatics, but, but that's are, not the Jesus story. The no, righteousness no, no, I know, thing, I know. Right? But like, you know, but yeah. like anything you're using, because I thought about this this morning. Like, how many of my principles? Are principles, you know, based, you know, in a moral foundation, or are they just things that I think and do to make me feel like I'm better than other people? Right, right, and sacrifice too. Like, how to sac? What does sacrifice mean? Is right. it is it just a game? Right. Do we really have a to sacrifice? Game? Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, to make ourselves feel better, like I sacrificed, I'm owed this. Like, well, that's a difference you know? between selfish and selfless. It's that when it comes down to being, you know, progressive or a liberal or somebody who who identifies with that team, you know, the real question is how much do you care about people that have nothing? How much do you care about poor people in your heart? Is really what's going to determine yeah. your moral foundation. That's the truth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It doesn't, I don't know. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But it is part of my story. Yeah. And I kind of want, I really want that to be clear that a lot of that came from that. Like, how do you make, how do you actually be really funny if you're a Christian? How can you do it? (laughs) There's not much room there. Pete Holmes has given it a good run right now. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You think he's funny? I do. I think he's annoying, but I think he's funny. Yeah. There's something, you know, Pete is like a very proficient comic and he and he's a very funny guy in a very sort of a palatable way. Um, but he, he but he's a guy that you, you know has same with Nick Thune. I, I know a couple of Christian dudes who were real, you know, solid like youth pastor type of Christians right. who who had a crisis of faith. And I think both of them did. And I think that both of them came through it with uh still with faith. Yeah. But with a more personalized version, yeah, and and I think that they they're str- the the fact that they struggle makes it compelling. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that was a, a really cool movement that happened. Is and I think it's part of for me. It was embodied in that kind of hipster Christian movement. Like, well, you know, we're we're, we're kind of born to fail. It's not it's not like you know, there's no perfecting just, the yeah, machine. Yeah, and you don't and and the Jesus story is kind of like you don't have to do that. 
and it would be wrong for you to insist other people do it. You know what I mean? Well, I've always been fascinated with the idea of the sins in that they they weren't designed to uh, to perfect the 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 human. They were designed to as warnings and as a way to judge and 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 seek redemption for your inability to stay. You know, uh, to 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 be consumed by them. Like it, yeah. it wasn't a template for that's, for the perfection of humanity. That's a, a cool way to look at it. It was a it was a template for the 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 sort of flawed nature of human beings to to regulate that. Yeah. Not, not to to fascistically, you know, perfect it, like to eradicate it. Right, like um like I guess the idea is great. The idea of grace is you're really pretty much off the hook. Like you can't Let's just admit we can't do anything to be perfect. Let's just accept that uh, there's right. this grace that we're given, and it's a free gift. Right. And there, and I think where we run into problems is when we get boxes that we got to check. Like I did this, this, and this. Ergo, I'm a good person. Right. I'm not, ergo, I'm better than you. Right. But um, the other thing I was going to say is like, I like you know, it's just uh, it's Passover, man. Are you being observant, no. or what did you do? Did you go? No, eat, I do go nothing. eat anything. Um, I haven't done anything in a long time. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I don't have a community of uh, friends or Jews, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you, you know, I, I I sort of have relieved myself of um, uh, you know even the the, the kind of annual rituals. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why really, uh, but uh, but you know, I I don't miss it. I kind of, uh, I, I don't, I, the, the religion never really functioned for me as a religion. Yeah, it functioned for me as a cultural identifier, which I think is really I the mean, weird difference between, you know, mainstream Christians and Jews in a lot of ways. I, I kind of like anybody in a way who's in their own way trying to be obedient to God. And then the only way, the only time I don't like it is when they're trying to be obedient and they want to kill me. Right. You know? Yeah. And that's where I... That's where you draw the line. That's where I say murder. Check, check please. <laughs> Good for you. That's a. You really. That's a. I was really a, trying a, to do a joke and I couldn't do it. That's like a, that's my only joke for this whole thing. Which is, uh, I'm okay. So let me. You draw the line at murder. Let me. You yeah. Let, yeah. Now you're correct. You're fixing my joke and you're actually making it better and more powerful. Okay, that's what I should have done. So first, I started out. Segue from the seder. Yeah. People being obedient to God, yeah. uh, I'm for that, except yeah. when they want to murder me. Yeah. But I should have just wrote it down or something. Right, right. But yeah. I was really like... It's a bold stance to draw the line And I started laughing. <laughs> I completely screwed it up. No, you didn't. All right. Well, I was just... I was, uh, we could I, fix that on post. Sure. I took it seriously. All right. I thought you were... Yeah, I thought it was a reasonable observation. I guess I do, it's I, true, too, but I, I felt proud like I had constructed kind of a joke, but it's really not. No, almost a joke. Yeah. It's there. It's, it's a, getting there. Got like, the setup. If I worked on it this afternoon, I'd get it together. Sure. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You want to come back? Sure. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> well, I like the... You know, after we've had this conversation about... Uh, about grace, I like the idea of grace, but more more importantly, the that 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 
that was a context for you that you were like, I am Christian. I identify Christian. I believe this is my community. Now, how do I be funny uh, and, and stay within my my comfort zone in a yeah, way of, yeah. uh, of faith? Yeah. And I spent a lot of time working on that because we would talk about this all to- all the time because in, in, in my friends at the call in, oh. in, at, at this Christian and, college. At, at that time, you're still doing magic. and Yeah. Do- and, and then do- there's what the funny thing is, is there were these. There were regular bands right. that were awesome, and mm. then there were Christian bands that weren't that good. But they would <laughs> some things never change. But they would, but they would, <laughs> but they would, they would package them like famous bands. Right. Like there was a super tramp. There was a group yeah. called Servant, uh-huh. and they marketed them as Super Tramp. Their logo was like Super Tramp. They sounded like Super Tramp. The photos were like Super Tramp. So you're going. It smells like Super Tramp, but it's Christian. It's okay for me to listen to. Um, but then all of a sudden- you I didn't t- think that Super Tramp was really you know, pushing the envelope of <laughs> yeah. Mo- moral- Yeah, exactly. We'd have to break that down. <laughs> yeah, like, you're like yeah, Breakfast the, in America, when oh, do they- demonic. <laughs> Take the long way home. You know what he's saying. <laughs> you're, he's asking you to be a sodomite. Yeah. Um, so but, you think you're a Romeo? You know, yeah. <laughs> that's an indictment of our Lord. <laughs> Romeo is as anti-Christian. That's Shakespeare. Um, so, so anyway, that was kind of a struggle. But we knew there were these great records that weren't Christians that were people living their lives and telling their stories. Yeah. And then there were these kind of lesser bands that were Christian, but they weren't as good. Right. So there's this struggle, and and we spent a lot of time talking about it. And that, it well, that's part of grace. You just put up with the mediocre right. band. Yeah, except yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah, like just put the yeah, you, you that's just part of your that's yeah, that's the penance of it, the suffering you have to listen to shitty music the rest of your life. And they do. There's a lot of them who do. So so anyway, uh the uh, the thing I wanted to say was yeah. I got to my thesis for my senior paper which was about this and it, the premise was and this will kind of tie it all up in a bow for you this will be we'll be able to move off of I, this. I won't have to tag it no you won't have to tag it so basically i did a thesis paper based on uh meaning and yeah. people finding meaning in your art or your performance yeah and basically my thesis was people are used to finding meaning in your art if they're used to finding meaning in other things interesting and so basically I realized it, I didn't have to worry about it. I didn't have to. Im- it's not art if you're saying I'm a Christian, right? And if you're building your, like, that's fake. That's not art to kind of be blunt and go, I'm a Christian, so you know this is okay. Yeah. There's no interpretation, right? Right. Yeah. It 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 strips the 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 most beautiful part of art out, interpretation. And so that was when everything kind of fell into place for me. When I go, I just, I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I can just do my thing, whatever I think, and they're going to find the meaning. It's not my job. But also, you know? like, there's a, a, the faith in the fact that <clears throat> your shit is right. That, you know, I'm right in the sense of, you know, my, you know, my, spiritually, I'm fit. So, like, I don't need to pay lip service to that. Right. That's fake. That's right. fake. It's but like, I just, just it's be like, me. It's like an artist who stands next to his painting and says, let me tell you what I was trying to yeah. emote. And, yeah. and you realize that. And that was what was bugging me the whole time I'm in college. Like, where's the art in this? Like, what's going on? Are Christians not artists? 
you know, what's going on? Or does that mean if you say you're a Christian, then where's it's per- done? Where's personal expression in, yeah. in, yeah. in where this is framework? It? And where is inter- where, how do you, if you're the viewer, how can you build up any trust if you don't be- trust that they'll figure it out and find and, meaning? And so you write this senior thesis, and when do you decide to, like, you know, what was the art at that time? And this is at the same time you're listening to Ralph Records, or is it later? Yeah. Yeah. So so that's coming it's right in. in there. So like you're saying like, well, it's, these guys. Yeah, it's right in there. There's this whole world of great music and there's tons of stuff. Yeah. Tons of great things. So what do you decide to do with this? New well, what I, what I realized and then, you know, it's really weird is um, I happened. They taught a theater, the absurd class at, at the college and I took it and I realized, wow, this is like um, like Ionesco. Yeah, 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 Pinter yeah. and Harold Pinter and yeah. all that, and it was like um, Beckett. Yeah, yeah, it was all. It was all. It was cool because the absurd gave you this um, this fail safe thing for comedy. Like yeah. you can't fail at being absurd. Right. There's no wrong. Yeah. And that's right when um, when Andy Kaufman was happening. And right. It was right. like that was the greatest thing that I've ever seen. Freedom. What he was doing. Right. What he was. He was actually creating this canopy that was above entertainment yeah. and kind of manipulating all of us. The show was all of us. Yeah. And there was something way above us that was observing it. Right. You know what I mean? And sure. that's when that those things those things all came together and and then I was kind of free and then I did started stand up and that's what and then and my thing was all kind of about inventions. Like I was really fascinated with being an inventor. And so I would invent these things. I was trying to get them patented. And I, 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 I'll tell you another example. I, built, I invented this thing called the frizz bat, which was like a bat you could hit frisbees with. So I built this thing. I get this friend who's really good at throwing the frisbee. And we go down to the gym at the college. And I had somebody set up a video camera because I'm testing it and he's throwing the disc and I'm hitting it and it's flying back across the gym. It's working. And I'm walking back and someone goes, what is that? And I go, it's a frizz bat. And he laughed at me. He laughed really hard at me, this kid walking by. Yeah. And I and I understood that what I, who I am is really funny. <laughs> I got it. Like I just had to kind of pursue it. <laughs> And it would be okay. Right. I'm, it's a frizz bat. And yeah. he just laughed his ass off at me. Like just a kid I didn't even know. <laughs> right? A frizz bat. And, you and just... that was kind of it where I just go, oh, I'm I'm like already manufacturing all this. And I just have to let it happen. And I just have to show it to people. Not so, take myself seriously. Yeah. If I just show them what I'm thinking and and not... And the other thing I did was I, I guess, uh, you know, I'm like slow. I mean, I don't talk really fast. It's like... I'm not really energetic and 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 somehow that kind of worked in my act and I didn't really understand this till I read Steve Martin's book. Did you read that? Uh-uh. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's I hear un- it's good. It's unbelievable and he he really describes how in a really lucid way how comedy works and it's kind of I'm paraphrasing but obviously he's a super smart guy and it was like he talked about tension and how you create tension and how the audience kind of rushes to figure out a way to release the tension. And he's, he, he kind of was using that theory. And I, my age, you know, Let's Get Small came out when I was like a junior in, or sophomore or junior in high school. And it was like the biggest thing in the yeah, world. Yeah, I was in junior high, yeah. Yeah, it was like the biggest thing in the yeah. world. He was like the Beatles of yeah. stand-up in a yeah. way. And so I, I didn't really understand that, but that's what was going on is I was actually like doing this thing and 
it was weird and it would create tension and then the audience started to find ways to pay it off. And then I started to pay attention to what they were paying off and yeah. started building on that. So, so you and that's what stand-up is, right? You learn your stage self, right? Yeah, yeah. It takes it can take a long time. Like you must have gotten figured out how to get to that like a few years ago. It took me like twenty years, really. I mean I was effective, but I wasn't popular in any way and I, I'm not sure I was my truest self. It took me a long time to figure out like uh you know how to be me in the best form up there. And I've been I've manifested a lot of different angles. I was angry and sweaty and provocative and and then like i always knew i was funny but it was almost like most of my stand-up career was m acting against that so you like rested and let it happen in well a way. yeah the fear you it's a of, fear thing yeah, the yeah. fear goes away you, know, you either like if you're if you're funny because you're defensive or hostile and it's just how you deal with the uh, anger or fear you know that that might not be the best night out for everybody well the other thing i <laughs> the other thing i got to tell you is i I noticed just being here, you have a pretty strong aesthetic sense. Mm. Like that's not that's usually pretty unusual for guys that are comics. Usually they don't, yeah, they don't like gravitate to those things. But that's like really obviously a big thing for you. Like yeah. pictures, instruments, records. Like you got to reflect. Yeah, you're always getting these like beautiful things reflected back. To yeah, you. yeah, and, and that's of, yeah. like not uh, that's pretty unusual. I gotta say so. But I know where that came from. It's similar to you in the experience of masks. You know, like this was, like when I was a kid, my grandmother's neighbors, the Nuricks, you know, they had a bunch of kids who were older than me. Like they were like, you know, in their teens in the late 60s, you know, maybe 20 years old in the late 60s. So when I was like five or six, you know, I'd go over there and I'd go into Carrie's room, this dude, and it was just posters everywhere and pictures everywhere and records and records everywhere. And I was just sort of like, what the fuck? This is the best place in the... Like, it was the same feeling as seeing those masks Yeah, that like, you, you go, this is... Like, it's actually really great because this is waiting for me. Like, I get this right, one day. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so... That's the, really... It's so important. It, that, it's so important. The first mind-blowing. Invitation. Yeah. The invitation that this is going to be okay or this is going to be cool at a certain point. And that's like so important that, well, how did they treat you? Were they like cool? Were they nice oh, yeah, to you? Oh, yeah, they're great. They babysat us. So it's were, like that's the best when, when there's an older kid who's cool and likes you. Yeah. It's like means so much. It's been my whole life it, because it's also because my dad was sort of absent emotionally and, and physically because he was working all the time. So I was always sort of in that search and I didn't have an older brother. But all the dads were pretty absent back then. I back guess in so. The day. And my, also- My dad was pretty pretty good dad, but he was pretty busy and pretty like working the whole time. Right, they did that. Yeah. But like also the late 60s, because I was like in 69, 70, I was six and seven years old. So culturally that was what's coming at me. You know, like Mad Magazine and- just the news. I remember seeing Vietnam on the TV, the protests like that. It's frightening. I it was frightening, it, but was I was like, those are the ones. You know, those are the people who, with the, they have the, they have the, they know who they are somehow or another. They, they seem to be like there was a raw, wild, mystical trip going that, that resonated with me. It wasn't the control guys. You know, I didn't go for, you know, team military. You know, innately, I was like, the chaos people. Th those emotionally fit what I'm into. Yeah. 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 And that's stuck. And that's pl ultimately playful, too. That's yeah, like no, a definitely. Child, child also goes, I don't want to ever grow up. Like, it seemed to me like adults, all they ever did was, like, uh, read stuff and talk on the phone. 
And it's like you're sitting there going, what the hell? This seems terrible. You know what I mean? And, and, and I where had to talk that- on the phone. Excuse me. I'm going to write a check, and then I'm going to read a bill. You go to bed. <laughs> now, if we're really good, we'll watch the news. If everyone's really good, yeah. we're going to sit down yeah. and watch Walter Cronkite. That doesn't look like a good life. No. That's <laughs> the last thing you want, even now. Yep. So so what? So your comedy act beginning, so you started doing it in like 81, 82? That's right. Uh, basically... Um, yeah, exactly. 81. I was in college as my junior year of college when I started doing stand up and I was right at the cusp of the, the big comedy, boom. the comedy scene and Minneapolis was really right for it. There were a lot of rooms, there were a lot of good comics and it was just just Like who like, was your crew? Johansson? Uh no, uh Louis Anderson. Yeah. A guy named Alex Cole. Yep. Jeff Cesario. Yeah. He was um, a Midwest guy? Yeah. He came from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, uh, a guy named uh, Scott Hansen, who was yeah. kind of the impresario uh, in there, who ran all these rooms. Those were the guys, and they were all at Mickey Finn's. Wild Bill Bauer, they were all at Mickey Finn's. That and was I remember, the place. And I remember being in college, oh, a guy named Roman DeCare that was really, really funny, cool guy. And But they were very hostile. They had this attitude the guys at Finn's. I went in one night when I was in college and like went and saw a show and and I didn't like the vibe. It was kind of mean. Yeah. Mean shit. And and then all these other rooms started opening up, the comedy cabaret and then the comedy gallery. And they were a lot more open, a lot more nice. And it was kind of infused. There's it's a big improv town because of Dudley Riggs. And so there's it's kind of a mix of improv and the comedy cabaret had everything. They they were trying everything. Yeah. So it was very wide open and very nice and there was no alcohol it was like a coffee shop so right it was a good place for me to like start figuring out my stuff but because i'd been performing since i was like in fourth grade i had chops yeah so i could i i knew how to end my act i knew how a good opener i like knew how to routine i well, had what good, was your I had timing were you bringing the inventions on because i remember yeah like- it was like a mix of um it was like a mix of a lot of retro stuff like i'd use like um Rock'em Sock'em Robots and Etch-a-Sketch and... and um, Rock'em Sock'em Robots. Yeah. And what were you doing with them? Like, what was um, the angle? I mostly just was demonstrating them. I mostly was just showing them. I, I felt like I was kind of shocked um, that they were like psychic darts. It was kind of like, basically, I, f- I figured out that there was a... Sh- I mean, this do- this doesn't sound meaningful at all now because it's so in the culture, but back then, people were like electrified when I'd pull out these toys, and it was like, um, it was like, it was weird. And I'd sing the commercials, so that was another weird thing because other comics were re- singing like Gilligan's Island, sure. right? But I was doing commercials from the '60s, and people were all remembering them. Yeah, so yeah. a lot of it was these kind of psychic dart things where I was going, just kind of remember this and people were really reacting to it. Right. And then I did like inventions and I had like bad magic and bad um, magic. Well, that's and a good stuff one. like that. So it was kind of like, the, and it was, I didn't really get that. It was a lot at the time. It, Steve Martin was so huge in my life. He really was like the Beatles that I didn't really understand. I was like aping or doing a thing that was very similar to Steve. But Martin. there was a couple of guys that were doing like, uh, like prop oriented stuff it wasn't unusual 
Yeah. But but yeah. you know, it seemed like your take on it was a, a little different. It wasn't yeah, you, Gallagher was like super like had a lot of energy and he's feisty. But and, you were me like you were constructing things as well as yeah, bringing out. I was toys. making things, I was showing I remember things. remember that. And so it was kind of a mix it was a mix of stuff. It was a, just a mix of show, showcasing things and So when did the first wave of success come as a stand up? Uh, did you do you did young comedians, right? Yeah. So what, what happened What happened was um when I got done with college, I did a brief tour through the Midwest, went through uh Kansas City and um you know, I can't remember St. Louis, I think. I just kind of did a loop through and then my friend and I uh, drove to LA. Yeah. And we went and lived in LA and I and I and I auditioned. Uh I I already kind of had an in. I got I got booked at the Magic Castle. Yeah. So I that was like kind of my place. I did the Magic Castle a ton like So you were you got real good at it. Yeah, and it was like they liked me cuz I wasn't especially good at it. Like I was a com <laughs> I was like a Ballantine, you yeah. know, it was like kind of bad magic right. and bad weird thi- bad props, weird weird things. Yeah. And it worked really good because I didn't threaten anybody. Right. I was really outside of that. And that was another thing that really helped me as a stand-up is I was pretty different than anybody else and so I worked people really good comics didn't mind me opening for them. So I would meet guys like Got to be good friends with Shanling and yeah. Jerry Seinfeld and those guys. So yeah. it was like they liked me and helped me out. So yeah. basically about two months in, I landed um, uh, Letterman. I got Letterman. Uh, a guy, here, when you were out here, you mean? Yeah, there was like this guy who, it was really weird. A mis- mysterious guy stopped me one day in the Magic Castle and he says, um, did you know Tony Giorgio's uh, fa- brother-in-law or brother-in-law is Barry Sands who produces uh, Letterman show and I said no and he goes yeah and he's he's coming he's you should talk to Tony about showcasing you should go on Letterman and um and uh, so Tony Giorgio was the guy um he's like a character actor and always always played mafiosos like he's in the Godfather and he's the guy who puts the knife in the guy's hand yeah I remember that guy and, yeah. uh, and so and he was a really good he's a great like pickpocket a really good card guy and he got me, uh, I got a showcase at the Comedy Magic Club for Barry Sands, and Tony Giorgio set it up for me, and um, and I got the gig. So then, two months in, I was 22, I got on Letterman, and that changed everything. So suddenly, so I, went, I the... went from unpaid regular at the Comedy Store at Westwood to paid regular at the Comedy Store in the main room. Oh, yeah. And then, um, and then I was doing Letterman, so I was doing The Road, and then um, I started, and then it kind of went dead for a while. I think six or Letterman didn't have me back on, and then I got the Young Comedian special, and um, that was the twelve thirty show, Letterman, not the daytime show. Yeah, it was the yeah, it was the night. See, so flew show. to New York to do it. Yeah, yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, yeah it was great. It and was Dave's great. a Midwesterner. You must have hit it, it off. It was great. It was great. Yeah, he was really nice, and it was super cool. And I and. Um, and then we did the Young Comedian special, and then everything kind of turned around after that. And then I got, and then I became a regular on Letterman and a regular on Saturday Night Live for like, I was v- going back and forth, like an episode on Letterman, episode on SNL. So I did, four, in like a year, I did eight of those. Yeah. And then they started to go, you got to decide, you're going to be on Letterman or SNL. Right. You have to decide. Yeah. Or we, Letterman wants you exclusive. And so 
by that time, I was kind of burning out on it, and I didn't really have- Were you touring as well? Yeah, I was traveling. As a headliner? Yeah, I was headlining and just doing a lot of shows. It was great, but it was kind of like I was, it was starting to lose its meaning for me, and I was like- I didn't know what I should do next. I was like, "Well, how was the environment at hand? Like, you know, you're hanging out with drug addicts and freaks." I didn't really. I think I got spared from that for a lot of things. Like, there was a fair amount. I mean, I, I was smoking pot back then. Yeah, but it was like and drinking a little bit. But but um, th- uh, they were all pretty nice, and I stared. I wasn't attracted to the danger, I think, right. the way you were. I was kind of more, like, scared of it. Right. So it was kind of easier for me to avoid that. I, I ended up really gravitating towards the guys who are really into the craft. Like, I love Shanling. Shanling, like, he, like, mentored me kind of. I didn't understand at the time, but he'd have me come over, and we'd, I'd bring my notebook, and he'd be writing, and I'd be writing. And we did that, like, fairly often, and he'd, like watch my set and he talked to me about my sight lines and go, Joel, you gotta, why do you look in one spot? You look, your gaze is in one spot. You gotta, you gotta run your eyes over the audience. And I go, but I can't see him. He goes, yeah, but they can see you. You gotta <laughs> like run your eyes over him. And it's like, I go, oh, that's like really smart. Yeah, and I, after still I, have, I still have trouble with after that. After I did that, I, I, I just always do it, and it's kind of fun. He, uh, yeah, he cool. mentored, you know, he was a very giving guy. Yeah, so, I didn't know. get it at the time. I just, I'm really frustrated that he's gone, and I didn't like, you know, I haven't talked to him in t- 10 years, you know. And he passed. And he, yeah, I'm frustrated about that, and I like, I remember coming back and this is after I had moved back to Minneapolis and I brought him a robot. I was making these robots out of found objects and I brought him one as a way of thanking him. And he put it on his set, like for it's Gary Shandler. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's one of my robots on his set. Yeah. But, um, and same with Seinfeld too. It was the same kind of relationship too, but that was kind of, we kind of got to be friends after I was doing stand up, and then, um. And we started like writing together. I started write, writing with for him on a couple of things. Oh yeah, Are yeah. You I wrote guys on, still friends. I, I wrote on his HBO special, his first HBO special, and and I helped him write the like kind of interstitial stuff. And yeah, we're still friends. He's on the new Mystery Science Theater. He does a cameo. And oh, I, that's great. And I did comedians in cars with them. But oh, yeah, yeah, he's still a friend of mine. He's great. Well, that's nice. Yeah, right. There's yeah. a bright spot. So what happens when the meaning drained out? It's because you're well, doing it. You're at the top of your game, the, the comedy boom, thing, you're a Letterman regular, yeah, you're the only a unique thing, guy. Yeah, the, I, I, the stress was kind of getting to me to have to cre- create more and more material. And build things. And build stuff. Yeah. And then, and travel with it. And um, and there, I didn't want to be on a sitcom. I didn't, there, back then, the only thing you could do is be on a sitcom right. or write on a sitcom. Right. And, and I didn't like anything. I didn't even like Cheers. Like, I was, I they brought me in to read for that part of Woody oh, like yeah. on Cheers. And I, at, at that time I didn't even th- like think it was any good. Like now I think it's awesome. But right. back then I just thought this is a sitcom. It's not it's what, stupid. yeah, you were the anti-sitcom. So that was where you, yeah. your pushback was. You wanted yeah. to stay in the art. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see myself. And I, on top of that, I didn't fit in. I'm not like that. My stuff's really conceptual and I'm not like a joke writer. Right. So it's not like I was a great joke writer like I could plug into a sitcom and right. be that guy in the corner. It's like, yeah. Re- it wasn't that. So then I, um, I, um, and then I just decided, oh yeah, it's like, oh, maybe I should like quit and just see what happens to me. Like, what is it going to feel like if I stop? 
you know, mm-hmm. um, what, am, what, who am I? Right. Yeah. So I went back to Minneapolis and did like a big show to try to make money. And then I like auctioned off all my props on stage, on stage. Yeah. At the end of the show. And then I just kind of sat and was like trying to listen to myself. Just like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Who am I now? And so that was just kind of, did you ask God for help? Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't, I don't remember. I don't, it's not that clear to me. Hmm. I don't, I don't know if I did. Hmm. I'm not sure. That's not part of my story, but I'm putting it in. (laughs) The day Joel asked God. That's always the great thing, man. I got to tell you one thing that reminds me of is like, my family's from Cornwall, England, right? And there was this family legend, like they had a ship and they'd go up from Cornwall to the North Sea and they'd get all this Norway pine yeah. and bring it down. And supposedly the family legend was um, there was an incredible storm mm. and your great, great, great grandfather prayed to God right. to stop the storm. And if he did, if God stopped the storm and they lived, they'd become farmers in Wisconsin. And that's the story. And it turns out, like, I ended up going to Cornwall talking to some people and they said, oh, when did your family leave? And I said, oh, like the late 1800s. And they said, oh, that's right when there was a huge recession. Everybody left, right? <laughs> right. So right. it was like everybody dresses it up with the God story, right? Yeah, and they were giving away land in the American Midwest Absolutely. to it was uh, incredible. Russian they, immigrants. They, they got the 500 English, acres yeah. for free right? just because they went there and put stakes in the ground. Well, they wanted it. The, they, they, they had a real issue with uh, actually farming in the terrain. So they needed people. They brought in a lot of these uh, people that, I can't remember who they were, but that were kicked out of Russia who were used, that's where you get the winter wheat. Is that no one, the American government didn't know what to do with that land, but they knew that somebody could figure it out. So they let people like, go ahead, take it. Yeah, well, Wisconsin is super, it's kind of a glitch because it's super fertile because the glacier moved through there. So it's like the best farmland in the world. So somebody screwed up. I'm thinking get, about Minnesota too. Somebody screwed up giving that away. Right. So, all right, well, that you corrected that. And now we're yeah. switching your story to you asked God for help and, he's, yeah. and he, he made you take some jobs and then he yeah. delivered uh, you robots. He dropped <laughs> Mystery Science Theater on me <laughs> and it was like so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which is weird because there is sort of an omniscient element in the way it's structured. Oh my God, jeez. Um, well, yeah. So I can tell you the story of that. Um, but did you like? How long were you in the wilderness, man? Yeah, I don't know. It seemed like um, it seemed like a couple of years, yeah. but um, it was great because my friends were still hanging out and like having this cafe society. I was only in L.A. for like three years, so I had all these cool friends who were in bands and living in houses and. And, you know, that's when we were reading uh, Jacques Alul's The Technological Society. Right, and I right. got into Marsha McLuhan and, yeah, yeah. and all that. So, right. And they were reading The uh, the Sacred Canopy and all these, lo- you know, theology books and talking about it. And, um, and so that was like an un- unbelievable great time. The replacements were happening. Oh. It was like Husker Du. Yeah. It was like uh, the guy, uh, it was Soul Asylum. It was all like perfect. That's great. And so I got to be in on that and it was so, I, I appreciated it so much. But anyway, so yeah, so I'm back in, uh, back in Minneapolis and I started doing this thing where I started making these robots out of found objects and it was a very instinctual thing. As art? 
Yeah, it was like kind of like I, I, you know, at the Walker Art Center, there's this great sculpture uh, that Picasso made where it's super simple, but it's it looks like a gorilla, but it's a Volks, it's a it's like a Volkswagen Tonka toy, right? And he also would do that with like handlebars, like racing bike, bike and make and the bike seats, head. yeah, and make yeah. um, and so I saw that and um. I kind of, it really spoke to me in a weird way because I realized like how primitive he was and like, you know, he could render stuff beautifully, but he, then he'd kind of alternate and do these really primitive things that were re- like, he, it just spoke to me because all it was is, hey, it kind of looks like a, it kind of looks like a gorilla head when you turn it this way. Yeah. And so that was part of it. And also, um, you know, they, there was some information out, like I think I saw a documentary about Star Wars where they talked about kit bashing and how they made all the vehicles and stuff out of, you know, model tank parts and stuff. So then that kind of inspired me, and I went to the Salvation Army, because I was always at the Salvation Army, like getting books and records and clothes and clothes and 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 stuff that I, I would usually make into my act. That's where most of my act came from. It's just super cheap stuff from the Salvation Army that I'd repurpose. And so there's all this brick brack. So I bought a shopping cart of it. Cost me ten bucks. I got a hot glue gun, and I just started trying to collage these robots out of found objects, and they look pretty cool. I like, I was pretty capable. I could put them together, paint yeah. them. Yeah, They look nice, and there's this shop in uh, Minneapolis called Props, and they started selling, <laughs> um, they started selling my robots. So yeah. I sold like 50 robots. I got pretty good at it. Somewhere along the line, um, I guess I was starting to feel like I wanted to get back in show business. I was kind of like growing out of thinking about it and I had this idea like it's like so long ago like this happened in high school like you remember uh, that Elton John record Goodbye Yellow Brick Road right? yeah I love that record it's great and Funeral with, for My f- Friend and uh, Love Lies Bleeding yeah love it right oh right that and, guitar comes in from Love Lies Bleeding it's great Best. I used to do a magic trick to uh, Funeral for a Friend oh. and um, so anyway um with each song, there's these illustrations, right? And in one of them, there's a song called I've Seen That Movie Too, and it's an illustration of a Clark Gable movie. And there's theater seats, and there's two people watching them. And in high school, I looked at that, and I said, oh, that would be a great thing for a show is, like, run a movie and then have these silhouettes and have these guys talk. So that was that. And then when I started thinking about it in Minneapolis, I started to go – well, I should do like a local TV show. I should do just something that's cheap. What's a cheap movie I could do? And there was this other idea I had in college where there's um, this movie called um, uh, The Turkey Awards. The Medved Brothers did this book called The Turkey Awards where they basically did the opposite of the Academy Awards where they'd have the worst movies in the world. And that's where I found out about Plan 9 and Robot Monster. And I remember being in college saying... Why isn't somebody making a show with these? These are like adorable. These are funny and great. Like what's why isn't anybody figuring out anything? And so during that period, I had the robots, I had the idea with the silhouettes, right. and I had the idea with the movies, and I started to go, you know, I think these movies are like public domain. I think I think or ro- cheap, right? I think Robot Monster Plan 9 from Outer Space yeah. are public domain. And I could do this movie like on a green screen. I could do this yeah. show on a green screen. And so the first iteration was this thing called You Are Here. 
and it was like a zombie apocalypse. I based it on the Omega Man. Remember yeah, that yeah, movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Charlton Heston. It's a zombie movie, and there's a scene, this great scene where he he goes to a movie theater and he watches Woodstock, and I based it on that. But I had I had so it was me. I was going to be like Charlton Heston, and then there was a robot companion, Rex. And we were, that was the theater seats thing. And we were like, we were held up in a, in a TV studio and we were watching movies, hoping it would attract who's ever survived. So it was like a zombie apocalypse TV show. Right. And um, that was kind of where it sat for a while. It was called You Are Here. And then um, I started thinking about it and going, um, eh, it's, I don't, I don't know if I can make it funny with zombies. Like it's a little, it's an apocalyptic comedy show. I don't know if I can do that. Right. So, um, so then I started thinking about it and I realized, oh, I've always loved this Douglas Trumbull movie, Silent Running. Do you remember that with Bruce Stern? Yeah, yeah. These three robots. I go, oh, that's it. I'm a guy. I'm trapped in space. I'm having to watch these bad movies. And I got three, like Huey, Dewey, and Louie from- from Silent Running. I'm going to have three robots. So I basically used that as a template, right? Yeah. And then that was it. That was pretty much the idea. And then it, along the lines of that, I when I, ha- I had a warehouse space, uh, the Colonial Warehouse, and in that space were these guys were making this like slasher movie called Bloodhook. And I met one of the guys, and it was Jim Mallon, and he was like the director of it. And... Um, and he started to like talk to me. I think maybe this is like six months later and he had quit doing that. He was working at this UHF channel. He was like managing it. And he approached me and he said, oh, we want to do a show with comedians. Like it's kind of like he pitched me like the gong show with comedians. Yeah. And um, I, I just was like so fed up with comics. I didn't want to go back in the clubs. I didn't yeah. want to work with the clubs or the comics, and I just said, oh, get to know Scott Hansen. He knows everything you need to know. Just go do that, and um, I'll build a trophy for you because I make stuff. I'll build you a funny trophy, but I didn't want anything to do with it. It just seems so pedestrian. Right. And so, but then I got home, and I go, shit, this guy's got a studio. I gotta, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta pitch him my idea. Yeah. And so I sat down with him. I always have kept notebooks since my freshman year of college, and- I showed him my notebook, and it was basically the doorway sequence, the theater, uh, the theater seats with watching a monster movie with the guy and a robot or two. I had some designs for robots. I was trying to think conceptually, but I really actually collage the robots. So I, I kind of work with them. Right. So I don't really design them and then build them, but I was just trying to show. Here's an idea for a robot. Here's an idea for a robot, and then. Um, and I think that was kind of it. And then he liked it, and he said, "Well, we should we should do a pilot. We should shoot like a fifteen minute pilot." And yeah. so we set to work, working on it. And um, Kevin Murphy was the editor there. So he, he, if people know Mystery Science Theater, they know he became Tom Servo over a couple of years. Yeah. And um, we started doing it. We started doing it at and I to do the creative stuff with me. I hired Trace Bullu and J. Elvis Weinstein. And J. Elvis Weinstein was. Tom Servo and Gypsy and Trace Beaulieu was Crow. And we started making these shows and, you know, that's kind of it. And we started really slow. I mean, if you watch, and I mean, I-, I Were they public domain? Um, well, actually, once we got to the, once we got to the, um, 
once we got to the TV's channel, they had already licensed all these movies, and they happened to have some crummy movies that we right. could use. So they were already licensed. Okay. So we didn't have to use public domain. That was a local TV station. And that, yeah, the public domain thing was just my justification because I go, how am I going to riff on, how am I going to like say shit about people's movies without them suing me? Is right. this against the law? Yeah. Can I get in trouble? So the public domain thing kind of helped me get kind of get Pass into that. it yeah, yeah. yeah so that was kind of it and then we did like 22 shows locally the whole idea was to uh sell it to cable right and then uh, and then just around the same time i like i said i worked during that time i worked on seinfeld's first hbo special and i met Stu smiley there sure and Stu smiley was the executive at the comedy channel right and so i had a friend there and we i pitched it to him we made a eight eight minute cell tape and that's it that's the story. How many episodes did you end up making? Uh, a total of almost 198 total. That's insane. Yeah. So you do all these, and Frank Conniff's involved, and yeah. Uh, you know, the, well, after we got the, rolling, you know, we did the shows locally. We got to go to Comedy Channel. We finally got paid to do it, and that's when we started writing it. Yeah. But before that, we would just sit and it was like watching us riff at a party. Right. We'd just kind of talk and yeah. We just started to figure it out, but the the big thing was um, was um, the big thing was we w- the thing that really canonized the show for me was when we cut together like an eight minute cell tape, and we used our funniest bits. And I go, oh, I get it. The whole show's got to be like that rapid fire riffs. Right. And so when we went to got paid to do it, we started writing it, and right. that's when everything changed. Like if we would have tried to improv, it would have been stupid. Right. But no, we yeah. wrote it and. It worked. So, yeah. And people loved it. It was so special and so important to so many people, but it was very specific. And, you know, it's it, it makes total sense that now would be the time to, to, to sort of reintroduce it to the world. And, you know, and you've got all this new talent and, and new technology. I remember there was a point there where you developed a show, because I remember being asked if I wanted to be part of it somehow or something. Like, what was that? Was it called The Box? TV Wheel. The TV wheel. Yeah. It was first called the Xbox. Right. And then it became TV wheel. It was yeah. like a revolving set. Yeah. It was built on a 32-foot turntable. There was a lockdown camera in the middle. And it's all done in one shot. So it was a sketch. It was like it was like laughing or like a sketch show. Like an, It was kind of like SNL, but you- I think I was, it, I mean, it, there was auditions for it. It had total point. context, though, because you understood there's a camera, there's a 30-foot turntable. 32 foot turntable and we have to do this all in real time there's no cuts there's no pre-produced pieces so the the premise all i was trying to do is just make something really live feeling right because snl was like rolling more and more pre-produced films in and i was just going it doesn't feel live this is live it was just a pilot though they didn't pick it up right well i'm happy for you joel thanks man sorry i've been handling this whatever you gotta handle Yeah, I this yeah, just like I, feels so good in my hand. It's a nice weighty knife. Yeah. I I think I someone left that in an apartment that I was living in, or that I'd subletted to somebody, and there was stuff, and that was you one got of the things. so many like, it's really nice in here. Thanks, buddy. Like I wonder, like what it what is it like when you're not don't have this stuff? I, I think about it all the time, like because I think like what happens to this stuff? How much of it is really important to me? You know, like I've often thought about cleaning it out and and making it different. I just don't want it to get dusty because it's starting to. Some days it, it feels like it, like you know, when those roadside attraction museums that are unkept with yeah. freak shows and babies in jars and stuff. But there's always like 
layers of dust on all the displays. I don't want it to become like that, so it, I have to stand. It hasn't it. got that vibe yet. You kind of have a place for everything, so it doesn't. Yeah, not yet. But um, but there's a lot going on here. I yeah. Yeah, it's it's cozy in a chaotic way. Yeah. Well, um, all right. Well, well I'm going to watch. I'll get caught up. Thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. I'm a fan. Thank you. That was me and Joel Hodgson in the garage. What an amazing guy. Great story. Good dude. Solid. I'm very excited that that show is back. You can watch the uh, 14 brand new episodes and the old episodes now streaming on Netflix of Mystery Science Theater 3000. No music today. No music today. Oh, my God. I need a break. Boomer lives!